Welcome to the Bikepack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Hey, and welcome back to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. This episode, I guess, is going to be a ride cast. And I will be talking about the BT 700. That is the Butter Tart 700. And it, um, it's in Southern Ontario, Canada, in case you don't know where that is. Not too far from Toronto. You're about an hour past Toronto and that's where you'll find, um, Waterloo, Cambridge Waterloo. And just north of there is a little tiny town called St. Jacobs. And that is the starting point of the Butter Tart 700. So it is a 768 kilometer long route with 7,600 meters of elevation. So we're looking at roughly 10% overall. Unpaved versus paved, 85% unpaved, 15% paved. Um, I found that to be pretty accurate. And having designed my own gravel route uh, on the Quebec side of Ottawa, I can attest to how hard it is to get that down to 10% or less. It is extremely difficult because oftentimes you want to go somewhere good and the only way to get there is through a paved road. And so you're at, you know, you got to make that decision. So yeah, starting point, say Jacob's end point, the same, or I mean, it is a loop. So wherever you want to start from, that would probably be your ending point unless you broke down. Some of the major highlights on the ride before I start talking about what I did, um, Mennonite country. So your first couple hundred kilometers, you're heading up from St. Jacobs and it's all like Mennonite country. And if you don't know what a Mennonite is, they're these like German descendants that came to Canada. Um, very religious. Um, there's a traditional and non-traditional Mennonites. The traditional ones, they wear black and white clothing and little bonnets on their heads for the women. And the men wear these like top hat looking things, almost like Abraham Lincoln, but not quite as tall. And they ride horses and buggies and they plow their fields by hand with animals. Uh, they don't use tractors and cars. And that's like your traditional Mennonites. The modern Mennonites or non-traditional ones, they, they drive cars, use tractors and stuff, but they still follow their religion and their preachings. And, and, um, yeah, so Mennonite country is really interesting to see. So I think that was one of the big highlights. After about the 200 kilometer mark, you reach Lake Huron. That's one of the great lakes of Canada and it is vast. So if you're not from here, when you reach it, some people might actually think it's an ocean because you cannot see the other side. It is just gone. You're, you're just looking at the uh, horizon on the distance and yep, you wouldn't know the difference except that the water is not salty and that's what makes it a lake. You also pass through five provincial parks. I'm not going to name them all because A, I don't remember all the names of them, but 
Yeah, you do pass through five provincial parks. And another aspect I really liked about it, one of the big highlights, was the Bruce Trail. So the Bruce Trail is this massive, massive hiking trail that goes from Niagara-on-the-Lake, which is on Lake Ontario. And it's 890 kilometers long, and there are over 400 kilometers of associated side trails. So, and the Blue Mountains, the Blue Mountain Range, I should say, you spend about a hundred and... 100 kilometers in the Blue Mountain Range, and then all of a sudden you reach Blue Mountain, and then you've got like another 50 kilometers of mountains. I think in the end, yeah, it was like between 130 and 150 kilometers of mountains, and brutal, but awesome. I mean, the the vistas, the views, the challenge, excellent. So my plan uh, going into this, I I was aiming for an FKT, so that is a fastest known time, and uh, long story short, I achieved it. I, I beat the existing fastest known time by 45 minutes. And then two days later, it got beat by somebody else. So short but sweet, I, I did hold the fastest known time. I'm just going to take you through my ride and talk about what I did. So I guess first thing to talk about is the preparation. And I'll lay out exactly what I had. I was using a Opus Horizon carbon fiber gravel bike. Or actually, I think it's marketed as an adventure bike. Don't know what the difference is between an adventure bike and a gravel bike, but I'm a big fan of the bike. It has a full Shimano GRX setup, two by on the front. That's with a uh, 4831 chain rings, I believe, or 4731, something like that, 4631. And the back has an 1134. I've heard I can fit a 36 on there. That might actually have to be done at some point, but for the meantime, I'm okay. On the bike, I let's talk about cool components first. I use the Redshift dual position seat post because I like to use aero bars for this ultra endurance stuff. And the dual position seat post lets me use my Brooks saddle, which would be awfully uncomfortable when you're leaning forward on aero bars. But by being able to toggle the seat forward, it allows me to sit in my natural position uh, a little bit closer to the handlebars, but easier to lay up on the aero bars. I'm also using the Redshift Sports Shock Stop Stem. So this provides, I think, about, I might be lying again, but 30 millimeters of suspension. And maybe not that much, maybe 20 millimeters. But it's really, really useful when you're hitting like washboard or bumps or when you're on the single track throughout this uh, BT700. There was a ton of it. And Really came in handy, keeps my shoulders and body feeling good. As well, I use the Redshift Sports quick release aero bars, although I built a little bridge between them so they were no longer quick releaseable. But the idea is that uh, for triathletes out there, if you're using the Redshift stuff, you can do your training rides with your friends or whatever and not have aero bars on. And then when you're ready to do triathlon, boom, you put your aero bars on and you're good to go. So that's a really, really cool accessory. And they could just pop on and off and you just have these two little brackets that are pretty much out of your way. So I love them. As for bags, I was using pretty much all Blackburn bags. I was using my Blackburn Outpost Elite frame bag. And they're two different, uh, they're feed bags that come that you can also get, I guess, Blackburn Outpost Elite feed bags or whatever they call them. And um, I also use the Blackburn Outpost Elite top tube bags. So 
The only thing I used that wasn't Blackburn there was the behind the seat bag. I used a little seat bag for tools, um, carried a spare tube, tire lever, a couple CO2 cartridges, tire plugs in there. So that's what I, I used behind my seat. It did get in the way a little bit, but it was okay. It just held some stuff. So it's good. Perfect place. So yeah, spare parts. I just mentioned a bunch. I also carried a bottle of sealant in the bottom of my frame bag uh, just in case, as well as a multi-tool and some tie wraps. I think that's about it. I can't, I can't particularly think of any other spare parts I carried. I also carried a first aid kit. Um, I like to be safe. Not too much in it. This one was a very, very minimalistic one. It had some bandages, a couple of alcohol swabs, a little tiny roll of medical tape around a piece of a pencil. I think there was one bigger bandage in case something happened. And then it was my assortment of uh, drugs such as Tylenol, ibuprofen, and allergy meds because uh, that's right when my seasonal allergies were on and it was brutal. I didn't carry much spare clothes slash sleeping gear, so I'll take you through it. It's a very short list. I carried one extra pair of socks, never took them out, never used them. I'm happy I had them because had I had soaked feet and if it was cold and stuff, it would have been useful, but I didn't need them, so that's good. Uh, I brought my rain jacket. I also carried uh, an SOL emergency bivy light. Uh, I think it's 150 grams. It's basically a giant potato sack. You climb into it. And then when you wake up in the morning, you're you're all wet from the sweat and moisture inside that does not breathe. So it's really important that you, you kind of keep the top open and don't close it up around yourself. Otherwise, uh, it doesn't breathe at all. And I also carried with me the Trace 360 light vest. Um, big thing for my wife is safety. And if I'm out there at night alone or something, uh, I can have that on. And it gives me like 360 degrees visibility. And that was recommended to me by a guy named Chris Bennett, one of the earlier uh, guests on the podcast. And I think it's a great piece of kit for running or biking, especially if you're a road cyclist out at night. Yeah, and then I had all my my normal clothes. So, you know, socks, uh, cargo bib shorts by 7 Mesh. Really love those. I had just a generic, oh, I think it was a Sugoi or something. Jersey on. I was using some arm sleeves uh, just to protect from the sun. They're not the, the heat warm type, but more of just a sun protection. And um, gyro helmet, gyro gloves. That's about it. Oh, I had calf socks on as well, just to keep my, my calves nice and tight. As for food in those um, feed bags, I carried about 10 granola bars to start, various types, um, cliff bars and builder bars and stuff. Really, really big waste of space. I didn't really eat any of them. I think I had one of them the whole time because I just, every time I looked at them, they were just, they weren't, I wasn't digging it. And when you're out pushing your body like that, you want food that you're interested in. And I think I feel like I'm more towards real food as well as a little bit of candy here and there. But yeah, um, I carried lots of these little electrolyte powder packs that I would just dump into my water bottles to keep uh, keep some salts in my system and whatnot. I think I carried a small bag, two, two bags of jujubes, but they were not relatively small in Ziplocs. But um, yeah, one bag split up into two or three or something. And a couple Snickers bars and maybe a small pack of like cherry blasters or something. I don't remember exactly. It was so long ago. Feels like ever. One other thing I did that I think is really important to talk about is I went through the entire route 
looking at Matt Cady, he's the designer of the route, looking at his POIs. And then every time I thought that that would be where I would need water or food, I tried to list down as many as I could in Evernote. And then I changed them color based on food or water. I, I pretty much only did the two. I think I would, in hindsight, I would do another one for for things of, uh, you know, important things like Big Descent or whatever. But I had red and blue, blue being water, red being food. And then I split those into pictures. I cut them down smaller so that I could keep them as a background for my off screen on my phone so that if I took my phone out, quickly popped it open, I didn't have to, to load in. I could see right away what all the POIs are. So that was a hack I've learned somewhere else. And I think it was really, really good because I could always tell what's coming up. All right. Before continuing on with the podcast, I just want to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventures sponsors. Bike Tour Adventures is proudly sponsored by Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat posts paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Use the checkout code BTA15 on their website to save 15%. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as a main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used a race bag since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Use the checkout code BTAPOD10 to save 10% at checkout. Lastly, named after the animal that roams the Tibetan plateau, Chiru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Magna in 2009. After noticing the lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. Thanks, and back to the podcast. What's next? The ride. Super fun ride. So my buddy and I, Carl, started at... I think we rolled out right around 5.30, 5.40 in the morning. We uh, slept in the car the night before, had the bikes locked up on the bike rack. And then first thing in the morning, we got up, got some breakfast and started to roll. And one thing I did, we did, um, oh no, we didn't get food for a while. We, I think we waited about 100 kilometers. But yeah, the, the start, as I mentioned, you're riding through Mennonite country. So it's all gravel roads for just about the first 100 kilometers. And then you come up to this really awesome um, piece of uh, single track. It's called the Carrick Tract. And um, some really, really great trails through there. There are just a ton of three, three big single loop tracks, uh, single, uh, single track loops. And then you come out and you just go right back up the road where you just came from and carry on with your ride. And it was really, really good, really fun, just really flowy. I'm a huge fan of single tracks, so it made me very, very happy. Not too much further, about 10 kilometers later, at the 108-kilometer mark, there's a managed forest that you have to cut through, and that sucked. It's really, really brutal. Um and not in like a, a fun, hard way. It's just big truck ruts and trees down and stuff. But anyways, maybe that's part of the challenge. I wasn't a fan of it. I felt like, man, I'm going to break my bike um, trying to ride through this crap. And then you're back on gravel roads. 
I think mostly all the way until you reach Lake Huron or kind of close to it. There's a bunch of, there's a little provincial park. I think it took us, Carl and I, about 12 hours. Now, bear in mind, we were not drafting each other. We always kind of kept our distance. And actually, in the end, I think, you know what? It slows you down more than it. There's no advantage to having a partner other than maybe somebody to talk to. But I think it slows you down more because every time one person has to pee, both people kind of stop or somebody has to tie the shoe or wants to stretch or, you know, these things happen and uh, maybe one person goes faster than the other. These, so I think in the end, it's not advisable unless you're out just for a good time with friends. And then eventually, as you get towards Port Elgin, which is the edge of Lake Huron, you get to the McGregor Point Provincial Park. And there's a whole bunch of single track through these trails and forests and super, super fun, super flowy. Uh, you just got to watch out for people because it is quite, um, quite a populated area with lots of people holidaying and stuff. And you definitely don't want to run into somebody. Um, that would suck. You'd a injure yourself potentially and potentially injure somebody else. And in the worst case, break your bike, right? That's, that's the worst possible thing. So. Yeah, leaving Southampton, uh, I think we got some food there, and then we decided to ride into the night. And so you're starting to head north up towards Savile Beach, and then going through the Saugeen First Nations Reserve area. And this is pretty pretty remote. I mean, just gravel roads, not much. Uh, I remember a really nice sunset, but... Um, yeah, there's there's not too much around. So you're going to need to make sure you have like water and everything to to last for a while unless you carry a filter. I did carry a filter. I forgot to mention that. And then you're you're making your way up to uh where is it? Owen Sound, but it's somewhere. I don't remember where, but oh there's Owen Sound. So yeah, you're making your way up pretty much the longest route possible to Owen Sound. So when you're about 30 kilometers from Owen Sound, you kind of turn north and then you basically do the entire point. Um, yeah, so it's good towards Wyerton and then cutting east and then turning south along the basically um, one of the inlets of the lake. And then you're making your way towards Owen Sound. And we rolled through Owen Sound. I do believe it was right around 2.30 in the morning. And... Heading out of Owen Sound, I think we both kind of started to get tired and struggle a bit with that first night. And at one point, Carl came up and said, "Hey, man, I'm like, I'm day, I'm, I'm seeing things, hallucinating." And I was, I was just in the same moment. And so I told him, "Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm down. Let's find a park to sleep in." And it just so happened we were going through this little tiny town, and we found a park. So that worked out really, really well. I said, okay, an hour and a half stop. So I set the alarm for an hour and 15 minutes. That would give us 15 minutes to, to pack up. And I passed right out. Turns out Carl couldn't sleep. Um, I think he was quite upset with how fast I could fall asleep. And when we started riding in the morning after about 30 minutes, he, he told me that, you know what, man, I, I just can't seem to keep up with you. I, I feel like I'm holding you back. And I think you have a chance at making the FKT, but if you stick with me, we're just going to be out for a ride. And so I said, okay, man, I respect that. Um, thanks for sharing your views. If you wish, are you sure about this? Cause I'm going to bounce right now. Cause I knew that if I would have stuck around for like 10 more minutes, I might have changed my mind. I was pretty tired. Uh, it was hard to wake up and I was, you know, I was cold a bit and trying to get going. 
I woke up freezing my ass off. I, no, man, it was brutal. So I told myself no more sleeping at night. And so, yeah, Carl said that is his final decision. And I said, okay, man, I'll meet you back in a couple days. And so I took off and heading towards Meaford, you go through this, I think it's called Bayview Escarpment Provincial Nature Reserve. And it was really cool, man. The trails through there were awesome. Pretty sure I didn't get lost. I think I came out on the right road, but my my GPS and stuff was giving me issues already by then. Um, it reroutes really slow. Garmin's reroute really slow. So you're super careful not to make a mistake because you might never know until like 10 minutes later. But the trails were cool and pretty self-explanatory. I think you just you just followed one route straight and there was only a couple times where you would have had to turn. Coming out of there, it's awesome. You're right up on this escarpment and you can see the lake or Georgian Bay, I guess. It's like, it's like it's five minutes away from you. You, you feel so close and, you know, you start riding and you're going towards, you know, you're going almost all the way down to the water. And like 20 minutes later, the water's still way out there and you're like, what the hell? And you keep going, you keep going and it just never ends. And at one point you, and, and you think you're on, it just looks, I don't know, it's just amazing. But anyways, you're going down some really sick trail and there was a part where there was a, where there was a bit of a escarpment or canyon type thing. And you had to go down and it was just these crazy switchbacks. And I've heard that, uh, it's recommended for you to walk your bike down. I didn't, um, probably should have, but I didn't. And, and then coming up the other side, obviously I had to push my bike because it was wicked steep switchbacks. Super fun though. Um, I thought that was a great addition. So Matt, if you do hear this, that was a week, that was wicked. And then rolling into Meaford, I was there for like 630 in the morning for breakfast, got some Tim Hortons wraps. Um, one big thing I liked with the Tim Hortons food was the farmer wraps because it's a, it's basically, it's a pita bread. With, um, I'd get the bacon ones, bacon, it's got the hash browns in it, egg, some kind of sauce, and it's in a little box that's nice and long and skinny, and I could just stick it in my back pocket, so I'd get a couple of those, one to go, and then maybe three, four hours later, I would eat that, and that worked out really well, so as a way to have, like, real food and easily portable. Yeah, leaving Meaford, super nice, following some rail, oh no, sorry, the Bruce Trail, I think, again. And then going up along the coast and then you hit Thornberry. And when you leave Thornberry, that's when the, uh, I wouldn't call it fun. That's when it starts. Um, the Blue Mountains. I'm not a huge climber. So anyways, you spend the next hundred kilometers going through the Blue Mountains. And sometimes you just look ahead and it's just this hill that looks like it never stops going up a lot. It was really, really well organized in the sense that the climbs were achievable. They were um, gravel roads, typically. But then the descents were usually through some tracks or like some old road tr construction trucking tracks or something or through uh, actual trails in the highlands. And so I made it really, really good. So instead of having just a quick, boring descent, you had a really challenging descent um, after some brutal climbs. So super fun. And then coming out of the Blue Mountains, you actually reach, uh, you, you think you're out of the Blue Mountains, but you're not. You actually just reach Blue Mountain. And as you get kind of close to uh, the ski resort, so close to Collingwood. And then you spend another 30, 40 kilometers going through this area. And it just seems to never end. And uh, through the 
pretty River Valley Provincial Park. Awesome trails. And by this point, I no longer really knew what was going on. I was just kind of following the GPS and riding. So I was getting pretty tired just a couple days into it. And he's got, uh, yeah, so you're just following these different county roads. I see lots and lots of trails. The Highlands Nordic. Oh, that's the Nordic skiing, I think, maybe. Um, yeah, so eventually you get down to towards Glen Huron and Singhampton. And then you're just following tons of single track for like the next, I don't know, ton of hours uh, from 542 to what feels like forever. Let me just zoom out here. Yeah, so like for like 100 kilometers of gravel bits and bobs with lots of single track in between. Uh, really good. And um, and then you cruise in. I'm going to just quickly say it, finish it up there. But you cruise in at the end of all that for almost 100 kilometers for the better part of 100 kilometers. You're you're on older rail trail and you're just trying to lay down the watts and everything in your body is hurting. You're tired. You're trying to stay awake, which is, oh man, that rail trail is brutal for trying to stay awake because it's long, straight, flat, boring and all those things. Yeah. So all that rail trails, super, super tough, super brutal on the body. And of course, just when you think like, okay, I can manage this, Matt takes you off the rail trail and back on the Bruce near the Bruce Trail, forks of the Credit Provincial Park with some crazy climbs. Uh, I think something it, it called for thirty percent, and I just couldn't believe it. I almost cried, and uh, luckily that was the last big, big, big climb of the ride, and I managed to make it through it and get back to the end. Set an FKT by forty-five minutes, which was amazing. So let's talk uh, some of the big challenges I had. Um, the first and biggest challenge was my dynamo. I noticed it in the morning. The lights weren't working. So I fiddled with it and then they were working and I was like, sweet. And you can usually tell because my rear light stays on all the time flashing red. But then it was uh, that first day around, I don't know, 7 PM. Carl goes, Hey man, your, your back light's not flashing. I was like, ah, shit. So I start fiddling, trying to fix it, trying to get it working. Nothing. In the end, I decided, oh, well, I'm going to just have to uh, use the Blackburn hiking camp torch that I brought with me that has a mount for the handlebars and use that for lighting and just take it easier. But I wasn't about to give up. So, yeah, that first night I was able to a little bit like a little bit of use the light from Carl and use my light and uh, we could keep a pretty good pace once he uh, once he called it. I was on my own and I had no dynamo to charge my battery pack I was carrying. Oh, I did carry one uh, power bank. I had no dynamo to charge it. That was the only way to charge my light. I would need it to charge my Garmin as well. I had no wall plug. I had the had cables, but nothing to plug it into in a wall. And um, yeah, I thought, I don't know if I'm going to be able to finish this ride. So luckily for me, one of the trail angels on uh, Matthew's course, which was... Uh, Oh, it's called the Highlands Nordic Ski Club. I pulled into there just before my phone died. And luckily, someone was there. And I asked them if they had a wall plug. And they did. And so I was able to charge my devices. And I used that opportunity to try to sleep for an hour. But my allergies just went haywire. I think it was just the, the region I was in. And I could hardly breathe. So I couldn't sleep. But I did manage to charge my phone up. I did manage to get the Garmin charged up partly. 
and I did manage that while that battery was still fully charged at that time. And uh, I think I charged the light a bit. So yeah, that was uh, that was the biggest challenge. The the dynamo failing on me, really catastrophic. I think it's a miracle I just didn't give up and quit because mentally I was absolutely gutted. Um, another issue I had was with Gar- Garmin maps. Um, sorry, with the maps on my Garmin. So I had the BT seven hundred loaded on my phone or on the uh, from from Ride with GPS. One with POIs, one without. And then I saw there was a new updated one and I downloaded that. And then after a while, I just couldn't tell which one was which. And so I didn't know which one to load. And then my phone or my Garmin was saying I could only load 200 points and that it couldn't. Uh, so the rest, it would just show a line, but it would never tell me when to turn or not. And it would just tell me like 100 kilometers to the end, even though I knew it had 300 kilometers left because it was going like straight as a bird. So that was a real pain. I struggled. I, I constantly turning my phone on and off to save battery and just quickly check the ride with GPS, make sure I was on the right track, backtracking sometimes, a couple kilometers even. Um, I think in the end I rode about an extra 12K, so that sucks, but it, it happens. And uh, I also had problems with my pedals. So I have these Time gravel pedals um, and they're supposed to be quick locks. So when you disengage the pedal, the shoe from the pedal, it locks it in an open position. So as soon as you put your foot down, boom, clips you in. Now, those little tabs that it engages with bend, and then it's no longer a quick lock pedal. It's a pain in the ass. You have to pry it open with a with a closed knife. I wouldn't do it with an open knife, but I was using my... I, I did carry a knife as well. Figured if a bear was eating me, I'd kill myself. And I could use that to pry it open, and then I could re-engage my shoe and I probably had to do that, I don't know, I, I didn't keep track, but one or two hundred times throughout the course of the ride after about the first day and a half. I think it was about 36 hours before it started being a problem, so halfway in. And, um, oh man, it was brutal. I hated it. Um, I was getting so pissed at my shoes and my pedals. And yeah, those pedals are changed. Let's just say that. So that was a huge, huge bummer. Um, you know, you jump on the bike, you get one shoe clipped in and you're trying to clip the other one and it can't clip in. So you stop, you look down, and sure enough, that spring is sprung, and you got to pry it open, and then do the same with the other pedal because that happens. And yeah, um, definitely, definitely lost time and lots and lots of frustration. And the last thing I had some issues with, not a huge deal, was my arrow bars. Um, with my physiotherapist, when we did a bike fit, we kind of set them up in a more natural, relaxing, upward angling position. But I quickly learned that when you're on the arrow bars. With them in an angled up position, it puts the weight at the back of your elbows, which means when you hit bumps, the shock stop stem is not actually working. So you're getting no benefit from it. And so I had to be very careful when I was on the arrow bars that I wasn't hitting like really rough areas because I didn't want to damage the stem. I just have to get on the hoods. Now I've got it adjusted. So for future riding, it should be perfect. Okay, and we're now nearing the end of the BT700 review. There were a couple things I I wanted to add. Um, so basically, I had already recorded this and then realized I forgot to talk about these two really important things. So here goes. Uh, the first of those is people that helped me along the way. Uh, there was three key people that helped me uh, get through this event. And I think the first one was a guy named Colin. So 
I was uh, cycling in the Blue Mountains and I was starting to get pretty tired and I was, you know, my, I was having tons of issues with my Garmin. And so it was just another one of these times where I start going up the road and about 300 meters later, I realize I'm going the wrong way. So I turn around and I see this dude on a gravel bike and he's going the way I'm going to be going. So I kind of slowly make my way up to him, catch him. <clears throat> and I just like, hey, man, I'm going to talk to you for a bit because mentally I'm in a bad headspace and I just need to distract myself. And he's like, cool, let's talk. So we started riding side by side and just chatting. And turns out he was planning to start a week later with some friends and was just out for a little a little training ride in the Blue Mountains and to ride that section of the route to to get a feel for it and see how it goes. And we probably rode for maybe the next 10 kilometers together and just chatted and it kind of helped the time pass by and uh, really, really invaluable. Um, I think I was probably at a point where mentally I was off my game, um, struggling to stay focused. And when that happens, your, your legs just stop turning as fast. And yeah, just meeting him and having a bit of time to, to chat with somebody really helped a lot. Uh, the second person that really, really helped me out is uh, just when after Blue Mountain and you, you've got all that climbing to do and then you come down these amazing, amazing trails out of the mountain range. And then when you, you come out onto a, I don't remember exactly where it was, but you come out onto the main road and then there's these houses across the street. And it was kind of getting low on water at that time. And I saw this guy out there with a chainsaw and he was about to start cutting some wood. And I just kind of cruised over and said, hey, man, um, any chance I could fill up some rain, uh, some rain, some water bottles? And we just kind of started chatting. I think his name was Bob. This guy was, I believe he was Bob. And uh, so we went to the backyard and he turned on the hose and got the water flowing so I could have some nice cool water and filled up all my bottles. And and while doing that, he asked me, hey, man, do you want a, a Coke to take with you? I got cans of Coke or Pepsi or whatever you want. I said, sure, I'll take a Coke. And next thing you know, that goes to, hey, do you want some Gatorade electrolyte in, in your bottles? He's like, I've got the powder. And I was like, well, I'm not going to say no, but I'm not imposing, you know. He says, no, 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 man, we do sports. We got this stuff. We, you know, it's good to have. He says, or do you prefer noon? And uh, noon tablets. I said, oh, I think I prefer the noon tablets, actually. And then he's like, do you want the whole bottle and like the whole tube? I'm like, no, no, no. Three would be perfect. One for each bottle. And that's the way that went. Then his wife comes out with uh, cherries. Strawberries, sorry. She comes out with strawberries, a big basket of them. Says, here, eat some strawberries. We just got them. They're fresh. And so I had a couple. And then she's like, no, no, no. The whole dish is for you. So eat up. And I just stuffed myself with strawberries. And... uh yeah, really, just really amazing encounter. Um, you, you would never expect it, and I think that's what makes these events so amazing. Even if you're you're pushing the time clock and you're you're not just you know you're not taking it as an easy ride, but you're pushing the body, you're still gonna meet amazing people. And then the third person I met that really, well, this one completely saved my ride um, because I was having problems with the dynamo and all these things. And that meant phone battery was starting to go down. And, and I believe I talked about it. That was at the Nordic Highlands ski area when I stopped and I met Fred who lent me a wall plug so I could charge my phone. And then also gave me a cot so I could have a nap while the phones were charging. And I just laid down outside their, their building. And they had an outhouse and everything was good. It was everything you needed was there. 
I mean, without having Fred there, I was so low in battery. I don't think I would have found the next place, the next POI on uh, on Matthew's uh, ride with GPS map. So I don't think I would have found the next place where I might have been able to charge. I think that would have been just take hey, oh, and my event's done. And that would have sucked. But Fred was there, and as a true uh, trail angel that he is, he, you know, was just so, so, so nice. And uh, so, Fred, if you ever hear this podcast, thank you. Sincerely, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. And uh, that is that is pretty much the three key people I met um, that really impacted my, my ride. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about is... My my final takes on the ride. Um, when I was riding the BT seven hundred, one of the things I, I really noticed is I never got bored. Um, and by that I mean uh, it was never on one thing so long that I would be like, "Oh my god, two hundred more kilometers to go to this." You know, it was there was always something thrown in. I think Matthew has done a fantastic job of mixing in. You know, the single track, a lot of single track, um, the climbs, having some flats, you know. So, like, it starts out, like I mentioned before, you know, that first 100K, and then you hit this amazing, amazing single track, which is only for about six or seven kilometers, these little loops. And then you're back on the gravel, but it just mixes it up. So, just when you're thinking, like, okay, I'm pedaling forever here, boom, you have something, right? And this happened pretty much throughout the entire 768 kilometers. And I think that there's nothing better than that. Just that change up because it's really hard to stay motivated and focused when it becomes monotonous. It's the same thing again and again and again. But this would just switch it up. I mean, even on the rail trail back to St. Jacob and you have this like 100 kilometers of rail trail or something. And you think that that might get monotonous, but no, Matthew has you get off the trail and go through some pretty sick trails with some crazy climbs that just piss you off. But at the same time, it just breaks it up and wakes you up and makes you feel good again. So thank you, Matthew. That was really good. If you have a chance and you have, you know, between, depending on your insanity levels, two and 10 days, whatever. I don't know how long you want to ride each day. But if you have a break and you're looking for an awesome piece of gravel to ride, I highly recommend the BT-700. I haven't ridden his other routes. I do look forward to riding some of them maybe this summer, but we'll see. I just rode the Log Driver's Waltz, and right now my body and mind just need to recover a bit. And that's it. That is the uh, BT-700 review or ride cast, I should say. And I... I think that is in-depth, and I think I've covered everything. I, I can't think of anything I've missed. If uh, you have any questions, please do message me, uh, make comments or whatever, and I will try to answer them. Hope that helps. And if you're going out there, enjoy it. There is also a BTXL, which adds on another 350-kilometer loop, which looks badass. And uh, the guy that beat me on the FKT was riding that, so he did two loops and set an FKT on both of them. So good job to him. He'll probably be on the podcast in the next little while. And uh, yeah, talk to you guys soon. Hope you enjoyed. Bye-bye. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. 
you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling.